0: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today we have a first. We are featuring a cookbook, and the cookbook we're featuring is Kung Food, Chinese-American Recipes from a Third Culture Kitchen, and I'm joined by its author, John Kung. Hello there. Thank you so much for joining us. For people who are now like, wait, what, cooking? You do have a legal background. Could you share with people what your connection is to the law?
1: I do. So I graduated from University of Detroit Mercy School of Law in either 2010 or 2011. And I had actually worked for the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office for two years prior and before I decided that I was just going to go into food.
0: (laughs) Well, I remember that time. And uh, if you graduated in 2011, my guess is you went into law school right as the economy was collapsing, like, hey,
1: yes, yes. The height.
0: Absolute and like
1: <laughs> height of the, the recession. But also it was like in Michigan as well. So we had been there the whole time. And yeah, it the was the recession
0: was, was where you lived. Yeah. Yes,
1: exactly. So so basically going back to law school was like my way of just like <laughs> delaying the real world just for a little bit. Because I'd graduated originally with a degree in theater and creative writing. And, you know, what does any person do when they are soul searching in their 20s? They they go to law school.
0: Well, I started working for the ABA Journal in 2010. So around the time you were graduating. And I have to say, our most read stories for the next two or three years were about the lawyers who had left the law and opened a cupcake truck, that sort of thing. (laughs) And so you were not alone in pivoting to food. But let's take us on a little journey. So what then did you do when it came to your culinary life after you decided, you know what, the prosecutor's office, not for me?
1: Yeah. So you know, that that whole time, like, the 2010s was not only just, like, the height of res- the recession, but I also feel like it was the height of, like, the optimistic millennial naivete that we all, like, had that led us to do things like open cupcake trucks because, like, why <laughs> not? Like, what else did we have going on anyway? And so it really just came down to one specific case that I had worked and worked on. I didn't work it by myself, but... It was actually for a murder trial, and I (laughs) had a hand in sending a 19-year-old into prison for, I think it was like 29 years or something like that, and I think the experience of doing that, because before I was just like signing preliminary exam forms and stuff like that, and doing that, I realized the necessity of the job, but I also realized that, I did not have the personality to be doing this for me or, or on my own. So by the time I got the call and got an informal job offer from the prosecutor's office, I declined. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and you thought no, literally anything else. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Appreciate yeah. the work. Respect mm-hmm. the work, but at the same time, that that doesn't mean you have to do the work.
0: So you had this background in theater and creative writing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can just look at this basically as another creative project when it comes to cooking, but it's not a direct match. So how did you get started uh, in cooking and where did you find most of your inspiration for the kinds of dishes you wanted to make?
1: Yeah, so I actually taught myself how to cook while I was in law school. And so bringing it back to there... It was the only creative thing that I felt justified in doing that was taking me away from my studies. So obviously, creative writing, theater, um, there was a lot of opportunities for an outlet in that way. But you know, in in law, not until you get into the, like the upper echelons of or, or or the advanced levels of the field do you actually really get to get all creative with it. So for me, if I was studying, while I was studying torts and civil procedure and all of that, I was also teaching myself like chopping, stir frying, um, frying and steaming all of the stuff that was associated or or, or that was a, a pillar of specifically Cantonese cooking. Living in Detroit, I had sorely missed the food that I had when I was in Hong Kong and had no opportunity to have it. And so I I worked on recreating those dishes, Cantonese home cooking, while I was studying law.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, this seems like a perfect opportunity on behalf of my listeners to first take a break to hear from our advertisers. But when we return, I'm going to ask for your recommendations for feeding yourself when you're a law student on
1: a budget. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time.
0: Like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, My Case, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm here with John Kung, author of Kung Food, Chinese American Recipes from a Third Culture Kitchen. And John, help us, help us feed those starving law students. You have a limited amount of time because you got to get back to your books, and you have a limited amount of funds because those student loans are high. How would you recommend any law students listening to us whip up a meal that actually makes them feel full (laughs) in stomach and emotionally?
1: So one of the truly magical places that sustained me when I was in law school was the Asian grocery store. Those are the types of places where you are able to do things like buy giant restaurant-sized bags of, of frozen pre-made dumplings, and of which you all you needed to do there it's pretty much like you would you know you would buy like the refrigerated raviolis at, at any Meijer or Kroger or, or or Ralphs or whatever, and it's the same concept. Throw these things into some boiling water, and then once they are floating and a little bit afterwards, they are done, and you can eat it with whatever sauce you want. Those got me through a lot, and those actually opened up some room for creativity. I started eating these dumplings with pasta sauces. I started eating these dumplings with curries. I started eating dumplings with enchilada sauce. Like, it was, you know, they're such a good base it's like eating things with noodles or pasta plus because they're already filled. They already taste better. And when you get like the Chinese frozen dumplings, first of all, they're frozen so you can keep them for whenever you need them and they're just ready to go because you don't need to wait for them to thaw. And you get so many more than like you would with Italian ravioli. It, the Italian ravioli, I think they, they sell you them by the count. They give you like counts of eight or counts of ten. Chinese dumplings—they sell you by like the pound, and so like you get a lot more. You get a bigger bang for your buck, and it is just as good, if not better, and more satisfying. So, and all, and you can also like you know you don't need a stove top. You can boil things. You can actually boil things in the microwave, um, pretty easily. You can also steam things in the microwave. So it's like the 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 options that you have are both cheap and plentiful.
0: Now there are two things about what you just said that I want to then connect to your book. And one of them is when I first picked it up and saw the dumpling recipes, I was like, oh God, I'm going to have to make dumpling dough. Of course not. You're like, listen, there are readily available, already wonderfully made dumpling wrappers. Just buy them from the grocery store. You know, you don't have to necessarily start from the base ingredients. You can take advantage of some, you know, shortcuts, things that are already there and available for you. So I, I made the shrimp paste dumplings, I don't think I left them in the steamer long enough, but they were very tasty. (laughs) (laughs) The edges were dry, and that's on me. That's on me. (laughs) But there's that. And then you mentioned it's a Chinese dumpling, but that doesn't mean you have to stick with only sauces that traditionally would have been used in China in Cantonese cooking. You can have enchilada sauce with these dumplings, and it's delicious. And that brings me to the portion of your book, where you talk about a third culture kitchen. And I would love for you to expand on that for the listeners.
1: Yeah, so third culture kitchen was my way of play, uh, of kind of like the implementation of the idea of third culture in terms of like third culture kids and stuff. And what third culture kids and people refer to is essentially like if you were a child who grew up within with two distinct cultures that were parts of your everyday life. So here we're talking about – a cultural root in your home, the culture of your parents or whoever you, it is that you happen to be living with, as well as the culture outside of your home. So these these kids would cross very, very thick and very, very pronounced cultural thresholds every time they walked out of their house in the morning. You could be a Nigerian-American, Mexican-American. You could be British-Chinese or or like Australian-Thai. It, it doesn't really matter what the home culture is, it's just the fact that you have to cross that threshold every day in your life. And third culture people, as a result, have very similar, I guess, sensitivities and nuances because they're used to switching up their way of communicating Every day, So their humor is a little different and the way that they perceive other people is uh, other people's emotions and other people's way of communicating is a little different simply because they have to work with two sets um, every day. And that absolutely has an effect on their cultural and creative output. And so the reason why I differentiate third culture cuisine from something, say, like fusion, although third culture is definitely a very strong type of fusion cooking, but to be well-versed and nuanced in what people like, what people from both cultures enjoy and like, and cooking with that in mind is so much more different. It's, it's, so, much, it's so different from... Um, Having a a cultural basis in one cuisine and then playing with flavors and ingredients from another. Like you're not, you're only still cooking for one subset of people. When you're cooking third culture cuisine, the the ultimate goal, at least for me, it's to cook for both sets of people. Like you, you might not be able to speak the language of each other, but like the ultimate goal for me is to produce a dish that is at least somewhat familiar to both types of people.
0: I'm just going to throw a recipe from the book out here. I have not yet made this, but it's reminding me of that. Um, And it's the buffalo chicken rangoon. Yeah. (laughs) That you can, you know, be using a recipe or method of cooking or type of food and be like, you know what? This other culture really enjoys buffalo chicken. Yeah, Let's let's see if we can combine these. So uh, could you maybe tell us a little bit more about your background and how you became a third culture cook just to ground people in in what your own background is.
1: Yeah. Back when I was teaching myself how to cook, I had like a memory sense of what Chinese cuisine was, especially Chinese home cooking, because obviously I ate Chinese food at home, but I was not ever encouraged to cook in my family. So it was also a rediscovery, Trying me trying to rediscover my own culture for myself. And how that happened was I was just going through sauces, going through ingredients, tasting things. Um, luckily for me, at least back then, Chinese labels uh, for any ingredients or any pre-made or jarred ingredient had not changed since the 80s. Nobody had a brand refresh since then. And so I was able to just see them and be like, Oh my gosh! This jar of whatever paste this is—I remember seeing this, so I'd buy it and I'd taste it, and I'd remember. Oh, this goes actually in rice. This goes in congee. This goes on chicken. It was me kind of like rebuilding or teaching myself how to cook based off of memory of things that I had tasted before, and ultimately that got me to that. That can only take you so far when you're we're trying to te- learn something as like storied and advanced as Cantonese cooking. So. Once I decided I was going to do it professionally, I had a little bit of an identity crisis, creatively speaking, and really asked myself, like, well, I'm, I'm not a Chinese cook. I didn't go to Chinese culinary school. I know the basics, but by no means am I anyone that could compete with anybody back there. So what am I and what are my strengths as a person who has been working in multiple restaurants at this point and in different uh, and in different aspects of the, the food and beverage industry. And I realized, well, I also know because of the places I worked at, I also know how to cook soul food. I also know how to cook a little bit of Nigerian food. I also know some like Midwestern comfort food fair. I also know like New American cuisine, um, which was starting to be very, very popular back th- back then. And so I kind of played with the idea of like, well, what if Chinese American food was allowed to participate in that culinary renaissance that new American food had in the 2010s? What does Chinese American food in 2010 seem like? And that made me think, well, what is new American food? And I was like, well, it's just, you know, American dining or American food. It's just a bunch of, you know, these established American, like usually white male chefs, but participating in the diversity of the rest of the country. You are seeing pork belly at uh, gastro pubs and different types of tacos of all kinds, cooked by the people. And there's nothing wrong with it. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. But like my whole premise was what if we were allowed to do that too? And that actually goes with the whole point of the book itself, I think. We all should be allowed to do that, and we all should be allowed to participate in the greater diversity of the country with each other, uh, with our own basis in cuisine, and then having the cultural exchange with other American ethnic cuisines. And that's why the book is structured the way it is. It starts off with a whole bunch of basic sauces, like Chinese sauces, like a tomato tomato soy sauce. So you have the chili oils in there. You have uh, ginger scallion oils. Very very basic traditional things. But then at the last chapter, you have their implementation on things that you wouldn't really expect, like so chili oil making dan dan lasagna or uh, the ginger scallion oil used to fry an egg to be put into a BLT, or uh, I'm trying to think really quick, what else? Uh, uh, oh, the, or we are learning how to make a Cantonese, it's called the lion's head meatball, and it, it's, just, it's just, it's a pork meatball, but it's called lion's head because we're dramatic, and we want to say it's very big, like the mane of a lion. But what does this braised Cantonese meatball look like on top of a plate of spaghetti? Cartoonishly large and really, really fun. And so... Hopefully, I'm I'm using the last chapter as an example of where you could take these. So the basics are at the front, and I'm really hoping that people will take those and run with it and apply it to the foods that they already love and they already make.
0: And I'm going to use an example here. So whenever I interview an author, I read their book, and I was like, well, if you're if you're going to be interviewing a cookbook author, you got to make some of the food. So. I actually picked a recipe from the last section and you warned everyone in it. You're like, listen, this is going to take a little more effort. Maybe this is a holiday meal type dish, but I chose to make the beef and broccoli pot pie. Oh, yeah. And it was really great because you're having, you know, I love beef and broccoli as as just a, a base meal and then combining it with the comfort element You know, you're from the Midwest, I'm from the Midwest, and we love a comfort casserole. And there are certain principles, oh my gosh, there are certain principles that you follow that you can include ingredients from other cuisines, and it just makes a a fabulous casserole. And uh, I very much enjoyed the beef and broccoli pot pie, so I, I endorse, it's worth the time. And again, you weren't asking me to make puff pastry from scratch. Never. Just take it out of the freezer. (laughs) Let it thaw and slap it on. So that was uh, a great example for me. And one of the things that I found interesting was what you named the last chapter. And it ties in not directly to your name because your Kung Mm -hmm. comes from a different origin word, apparently. But Kung food, the title, the term... Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I found that an interesting part of the of the book.
1: Sure. Yeah. So kung fu was is like a play on words in multiple ways. So like yes, it is in English, it is the my last name. But also like kung fu, or in general like kung fu and kung gong fu, it doesn't necessarily mean martial arts. It actually just means like the mastery or or the uh, application of a skill after a lot of effort and practice and so when somebody says oh uh your kung fu is really good it just means like oh wow this is like a skill and it's a recognition of the skill and effort that you put into something and so yeah the title of the book itself kung fu it just embodies so many different puns in a way that you know it, it was impossible for me like not to make that the title
0: you had to. I had. You to. had no other I had choice. To. I didn't. Yeah, I
1: didn't. Yeah.
0: So you had been uh, doing these secret pop-ups where people would be invited, and you would throw these these feasts. And then COVID happened to all of us, but particularly, it was not a time to be inviting people into a small room to all have no masks on and eat together. How did that then? Launch you on TikTok.
1: Yeah, so funny to be talking about an unsanctioned, illegal secret <laughs> <laughs> pop-up restaurant well, in kitchen is, on a legal yeah. on a legal podcast. But um,
0: my cousin Jimmy's not a lawyer, but as he says, nothing's illegal until you get caught.
1: That is, see, that is that is true, but it's also <laughs> definitely not a defense. <laughs> so. <laughs> And so, so I had been running this uh, secret kitchen, teaching dumpling making classes, and having tasting menus based off of themes of of films and all, and pretty much anything that I wanted, uh, for six years up until the pandemic started. And once it did, um, I was like, well, I'm there's only a, there's only a limit to how much of the law I'm willing to break, like. I have an understanding of how to keep people safe when it comes to food and making sure that things are cooked and food safety, but I'm not willing to get people sick during this crazy, scary, and at the time, it seemed world-ending pandemic, so I shut down, and I had been on TikTok. I had been on TikTok for quite a while before then, I think I joined TikTok shortly after it had switched from Music Holly, and I wasn't producing videos. I, w- I wasn't making videos on it, but I was. I understood that there was something special about the app. I just didn't understand where. I, I didn't know where I fit in just yet, and so I would check on it periodically every couple of weeks, swipe a couple of videos, be like, oh, this person's dancing, this one's per- this one do- this person is doing cosplay, this person is is doing like, you know, what TikTok acting was back in then, which was just like lip-syncing to like scripts of, of sounds of like uh movie clips. And I was like, okay, this is cool. I used to really like Vine, so I can see that this could pick up from then. But once the pandemic hit, people got very raw and very honest and they were talking about also also the black lives matter movement was happening at the time so there was also just this surge of of on the ground as it was happening by the perspective of the person reporting so that is what initially just sucked me right in just so I could see what was going on and like and that actually was like one of the first videos that I did was talking about like how pepper spray worked and how the capsaicin oils in pepper spray worked and talking about like, what should you be rinsing yourself off with because what it reacts to the oil of the pepper spray. Uh, That was probably like one of the first videos that I did that actually got some recognition. But after that, I really had nothing to add. So I was just watching it and people were starting to talk about the pandemic and how scared and how frightened they were. And these were all younger people for sure. And so... I was wondering, I was like, what what could I do? What do I know how to do? And how could I help? By this time we were in quarantine and lockdown. And so I was like, I can teach people how to break down a chicken and use all the parts to make multiple meals. I can teach people how to clean out their fridge and whip it all up into a frittata so that nothing goes to waste because we didn't know when we were going to get to grocery shop again.
0: And everyone bought beans and they didn't know what to do with the beans.
1: Everyone (laughs) bought beans. Yes. And then I I, I did a feijoada thing, which is like a Brazilian black bean dish with that. And yeah. And that was like how I was able, that was how I was trying to help. And during that time I was learning how to get comfortable in front of the camera because before then I had no I had no desire to go into social media. I had no desire to go into new media. I didn't know YouTuber was a career and that they like, not me, but like some YouTubers make a lot of money. That's
0: one thing that fascinated me. You went from having these kind of covert uh, pop-ups where it's very need to know to now you're addressing anyone who could happen upon this TikTok. And if you... Where before that, you know, a very private person who wasn't necessarily seeking a huge audience that had to be a real change mindset wise.
1: Yeah, it was a very mentally transitional few years for me to understand what was going on when I was physically cooking for people. Giving people my food, I was terrified of being found out because of you know the whatever health departments or or, or or city you know city inspectors or whatnot. Like I was very very secretive. Everything was by word of mouth, and you know my my Instagram like it was pretty, but I was not very. I wouldn't really share addresses or whatnot. Like if you knew where I was, then you could come eat. I actually had I had magazines like come and photograph me and talk about my dumpling classes on like our some it's called Our Magazine and it's like a nice city publication and I was like you cannot take any photos that are revealing of the building that I'm in you can talk about these lessons but you cannot give an address and that was like my, my the way that I would agree to do these articles and these interviews and now like doing the TikTok thing it is still crazy to me that People will stop me on the street and be like, "Hey, aren't you a cook?" And I have to, every time, just try my very best not to be so awkward in that situation.
0: <laughs> so you say that you first got traction on TikTok um, during the time and in you being in Michigan, Black Lives Matter. It was happening, uh, you know, all around you. But then you started giving these cooking tips. When did you realize that TikTok had actually become some place where you could have some business and you could be spending more time doing it and turning it into uh, more of what you do professionally?
1: Oh yeah, that was that's easy. When I started getting paid, it was yep. uh, it was incredible because I was making these videos and then I was approached by a company called Funimation. And they are, as of now, they are the largest distributor of anime in the United States. I think they are the only anime network that now exists in the United States. But then back then, there were one of two. And so I recognize this as a kind of a big deal that they approached me at all. After things started to settle down a little bit pandemic-wise and we were able to grocery shop and things seemed a little less doom and gloom, I was pretty much, I was like, well, I'm here. This is fun. I still can't have people over, but I'm going to just start showing off what I had been doing in Detroit for the past six years, which was making these tasting menus based off of the films of Hayao Miyazaki, which is like this, which is all of these really gorgeous, very, very just beautifully drawn and beautifully story told films, the animated films. And that's when I really got, that's when it started to really happen. That's when I was getting anywhere between like 10, 20, 30,000 followers in a day on TikTok. And so with that surge, with that type of surge in followers, you start getting attention from the brands that are already there. And the anime brands, um, they're very quick to adopt new technology. So they were there and they approached me and we start i started making anime based food videos for them and they were doing well and they would order more and they would do well and then they were like oh can you do a 5 6 episode igtv series based off of ramen and a show called naruto and i was like yeah sure and then i realized by that time i realized like oh i'm getting more i'm making more money in the span of a month than I was for the entire year previous as a line cook. And then it dawned on me, it was like, oh, this is a totally different type of income that I'm used to. And in my mind, I it had already been like, you know, it was a win-win situation for me. So I was like, if this does not continue on, if this disappears when the pandemic is over, I already came out on top. Like, I already have, like, some new toys. I got a new computer. I got a new camera. I got all this new stuff. Um, Because of the money that I made doing TikToks, what else do I have to lose at this point by continuing on? And then I got a book deal.
0: (laughs) And let's talk about the book deal, because that's what we're here (laughs) to talk about. Yeah. How were you approached? Um, What was your initial thought? And did you go through various ideas that didn't work before you landed on the ones that did. I'd love to hear about the process.
1: Yeah. So the whole process of me even getting the book deal was not conventional for any author. I was involved in a Zoom call talking about third culture food to editors of my now publisher, Clarkson Potter. And I I was brought on by one of their authors and a friend of mine to talk about you know, my theories and and, and my philosophies on this type of food. And it resonates with a lot of people. And it resonated with, in particular, two authors that were about to put out their cookbooks, um, Rick Martinez and Eric Kim. And so after I gave like a 10-minute spiel on their joint Zoom call, not really thinking anything of it, Eric told me that after the Zoom call ended, he texted Rick and was like, this guy's getting a book deal. And Rick was like, yes, absolutely he is. (laughs) And lo and behold... I got an email from my now editor asking uh, Raquel asking if I was interested in writing a cookbook. Which, as a cook, as a which as a cook in his in his 30s, you never or I never would have assumed that this opportunity would come to me so early. I thought if I had maybe two or three restaurants under my belt that were successful, and I could retire in my 50s or (laughs) 50s. Let's be real. <laughs> 70s or 80s.
0: You're a millennial. Right, exactly.
1: 70s or 80s in writing a cookbook slash memoir thing. this I was jumping the, the gun anywhere from like 30 years before I was planning to. But I was like, yeah, I do have something to say about this. And I want to take on not just issues of food and home cooking, but address issues of identity In that. And that's what, I mean, that was my starting goal with the book. And that was, as a result, what I produced in this book.
0: Was it hard to narrow down which recipes you would include? Or did you already have a pretty good idea?
1: Luckily for me, I'm used to like, because of the dinners that I would do, I would come up with a new tasting menu every month. And so that was a completely different menu with a completely different theme with completely different ingredients because it's like a different season as well. And so I didn't have the entire book pre-planned, but I understood what made sense as the following dish in a recipe, like what what made sense as a follow-up. And so I think only maybe a few of the recipes that I had you know compiled for this book were the ones that didn't make it. But otherwise, it was everything that I had written – for this book, stayed in this book.
0: As an editor, the other question I have is: you know, I know how the process of editing a magazine works, a newspaper article, uh, even a book, and you're sending the author back revisions. How does that work when it's a cookbook? Are your editors just making sure you're using semicolons correctly, or are they, you know, making? Did you have uh, you know, test chefs? try to make it from the recipes. What's what's that process?
1: Yes. So cookbooks, as it turns out, are one of the most expensive books to produce of all books, just simply because it's not just photography and it's not just editing. Well, although photography is probably the second biggest, if not the biggest expense from the book itself, usually.
0: And the photos were beautiful. And, uh, Shout out, I believe it was, uh, who was oh, your Johnny photographer? Miller.
1: Johnny Miller. Amazing, amazing genius of a photographer and so much fun to work with. And yes, it's, it's so, you know, and and you have to understand that I'm coming into this as a person who has never written professionally in his entire life. I'd never been paid for a single word on a page in my life unless you count unless you like, you know, count me sending out warrants. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, you can't count those because I was an intern for free. So, no, I had never been paid for any words that I had put out. Um, And so, yeah, I, I was so new and I still am so new to the entire bookmaking process. Like I had to get help. I had help from an editor who didn't really, who didn't change anything I said, but formatted it for me and like took all the recipes and put them into the Clarkson Potter format. Like if I had to do that, I would have gone mad. I can give you just a semi-coherent big like page after page after page of of head notes, which is like the stories that go in front of, of the recipes to the recipes themselves. But I never had to worry about capitalization of... Cups versus ounces, or use of periods after abbreviations. I mean, yeah, I had to work like I. (laughs) Last time I had to worry about that, I was doing legal writing and I never wanted to do that again. So <laughs> you left the whole profession. <laughs> yes, I did. I did You never
0: wanted to see the blue book again. <laughs>
1: right. And so like I had my my recipes and stuff like that. Well, they were coherent, but they were still a little chaotic. And thank you, Nils, for cleaning up behind me and allowing me to just write this thing. But yeah, it was it was a very difficult process when it came to like getting things back because you you kind of wonder was like did I did I write this in this way because remember this is also this process takes two it took me two years I was looking at things that I had written in, on, on like I guess the editing table or whatnot about things that I was right like I wrote a year ago and that's another way that cookbooks are very very interesting like because. They take so long and because we were in a period and we still are in a period of like immense and crazy pace of change, I look back at this thing and I was like, yeah, this is this is me, but this is also like very strongly who I was two years ago and I'm so different now because I had gone through so many changes in my life. So I'm really grateful for the book in that way because it was a very, very strong cross section of who I was at this really really momentous time in my and so many other people's lives, it kind of like for me was a documentation of that as well.
0: Now, you and I are speaking before the book is officially out. We're talking on October 25th. The -hmm. book comes out October 31st. What do you have planned to promote it and what's next?
1: So I will be going on a book tour. When did you say the podcast was coming Uh, out? Probably November 8th. By the time this podcast comes out, I'll be Almost done my tour, but I will be in Chicago on the Chicago leg of this tour. And that one will be at, it's still a location that's to be announced. So you will have to check my Instagram at John Kung to see where I am at this time. But then I still have like Detroit. We have a homecoming party and conversation in Detroit on the 16th, um, as well as some uh, later ones in December in Detroit Ann, Ar- Ann Arbor. So I'll be promoting my book on tour, but you know, luckily social media reaches everyone. And now as of the recording of this thing that the book is out, I'm allowed to cook things from it and share them on video. So I will have some content out there on my YouTube that showcases a lot of the dishes from this book. And I can plan on continuing to do so up until like Lunar New Year.
0: And we mentioned your TikTok, but we did not say what your handle was for TikTok or YouTube. So how can people find you on social media?
1: It is at John Kung, J-O-N-K-U-N-G on everything.
0: Well, John, thank you so much for appearing on this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service. And if you have a book that you'd like me to check out, and obviously we have now expanded to cookbooks as long as there's still a legal angle, you can always reach me at books at abjournal.com.